Hello everyone, it's December 19th, 2023. This week we're taking a quick look at that secret Chinese reusable test spacecraft. Actually, there are no photos, so not even a quick look, but it just launched for the third time. The X-37B has got some competition now. Okay, let's launch the not-so-secret podcast and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 439 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, did you guys know that uh, Dustin from Smarter Every Day has uh, made a game? I did not. Yeah, so it's called Fish Game, and you can find it at fish.game, which is very nice that they got that URL. And it's in collaboration with Shell in the Pit Games, which I love. Uh, that like I didn't I didn't know that uh, Shell in the Pit did video game music too. I guess it makes sense. But like all of all of uh, Dustin's music is all from Shell in the Pit. And so, yeah, apparently they publish games and not just uh, make music for them. And yeah, so Fish Game is a fish tank, like a virtual fish tank game with a focus on uh, fish personality and behavior and like realism. It's in early access, although apparently they screwed up listing it on Steam and didn't check the early access box and they can't go back and fix it. Um, so it's not, it's not listed. It's definitely an early access game. Um, I played it for a few hours yesterday and it crashed multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, one of the tabs, instead of having a title says, uh, missing string table entry or something like that. And right now it's, there are only male fish because they don't want to introduce fish breeding until it's, like a like they've really worked out how to make the mechanic good and interesting um rather than just there but the game looks really nice and like it's really pretty and the fish actually behave like real fish like it's it's genuinely really good and there's like a bunch of plants and stuff like it's it's actually it's fun. It's not my favorite game of all time, but it's fun, and I've been playing it. Sounds like a cool game. It's got great reviews. Did you watch the speech that Destin gave? I think it was in somewhere in Alabama, local place. It was a presentation, really. Oh, what was it for? Um, possibly a university, maybe. I cannot remember, but uh, it was pretty interesting because uh, he ran into the same question about how many times or how many flights of a tanker of a Starship tanker does it take to refill a Starship uh, in order to get it to the moon, mm. and uh. He was like, I'm ashamed to say that I have no idea. And so I asked a friend and they said maybe like six, but probably more like eight. And then someone else said maybe more like 10. And then, and then he's like, well, I'm a smart guy. So I did the math and it turns out it's more like 20. And it just kind of spiraled out of control. He's like, it's going to take a lot to fuel that thing, but no one's really sure. Probably somewhere between like 12 and 15, it looks like. Yeah. yeah. That's, I mean, that's, those are the numbers that we see. That is a pretty uh, substantial range for our yep. HLS <laughs> system. So it's like, come yep. on. Yep. And we don't know if that's even a reasonable thing to ask of SpaceX. Like, we don't know if they can actually do it. But I don't know. We'll see. So in the news, uh, China launches space plane for the third time. Now, does this does this space plane even have an official name, or is it just the reusable test spacecraft, which is what they call it in official statements? I'm not aware of a, an official yeah. name beyond that. Just making sure. Unofficially, it's called the secretive, you know, very, very secretive Chinese space plane. You always got to throw that adjective there. <laughs> yeah, and it is quite secretive, um, yeah. which is not surprising. Yeah, so this most recent launch was, what, on the 14th or 15th? 
it was launched aboard a Long March 2F. And uh, what's interesting, uh, Xinhua, the Chinese news agency, reported that this was going to happen just within like one hour of liftoff. So there wasn't much warning that it was even going to happen. Um, I don't know about NOTAMs. I guess those would give you a better idea. Is that correct, Ben? Right. So so NOTAMs aren't issued by the by governments, right? It's like FAA in the U.S. issues them, and there I think there's a European organization. But like, so yeah, for for a NOTAM to get listed and shared in the uh, the aerospace community, it has to get reported to an um, one of the entities. I believe it's more than one. I don't think it's just FAA. But the thing is, like. Yeah, we'll have that if China decides to share that information. We don't, they don't always. Legally speaking, right? International law is very different than domestic law. In domestic law, everybody is subject to the, the laws that that particular government has made. But international law is more like, hey, we all kind of agree to do this, but there's no way to really enforce it because there's no, authority higher than a than a country's government well that's kind of what i've always wondered yeah, yeah. and i never actually asked that on this show but like how enforceable is that and of course it's sh- i mean i would guess it wouldn't be enforceable at all because if you know china doesn't want to tell us they don't have to i mean we can't do anything about that to answer your question directly no there, there's no real way to enforce it and it's just you know playground rules that people have agreed on <laughs> and so for for china um the u.s has been really firm in insisting, hey, you need to tell us every time you launch something. And to my knowledge, they they pretty much do, but that doesn't mean that we get to hear about it as as the public. And it doesn't mean that they give a lot of of heads up before they do it. Is it relevant at all though like this is flying from like they're launching out of like northwest China? So I have to imagine it's well in, you know, above the Carmen line before it passes over international kind of space or anything like that. I mean, that definitely gets them more leeway when it comes to repercussions, but the repercussions hmm. are, are pretty much just opinion at, at this point. Hmm. And then it lands in, uh, I have it here down here, uh, Lop, what's it called? Uh, Lopnur. Lopnur, mm-hmm. yeah. It lands in Lopnur, which is uh, way out in like Xinjiang somewhere. So, you know, I don't suppose there's, you know, any need to tell anyone about that either. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so the Xinhua report said that, you know, it would lift off at approximately 10 a.m. and that is Eastern time. Uh, the estimated liftoff, however, is at 1412 UTC, which is actually, what, like 912 Eastern time. Uh, and that's according to Jonathan McDowell. Uh, you know, that's his best inference. So yeah, not a whole lot of warning at all. The Space Force catalogs the spacecraft in a 333 by 348 kilometer orbit with a 50 degree inclination. And this is pretty similar to the first launch. Uh, the second launch, I believe, was maybe at the same inclination. But then it uh, uh, it moved to a higher orbit. Um, I don't know if it did any changes in inclination, but uh, yeah, pretty similar. And just some other quotes from Xinhua, according to that news agency, uh, the space plane will operate in orbit for a period of time, which again, is just vague. And I just wanted to point out how vague that is. Um, <laughs> it's intended for reusable technology verification and space science experiments for the peaceful use of space. So this is like something that I think that they've indicated each time for the quote unquote peaceful use of space. The thing that's obvious, I suppose, is that both with you know the US's secret space plane and the Chinese one. Um, there's certainly military things going on, but both are at pains to say, "Hey, this is just for the peaceful use of ah. space." And and if you if you disagree, it's 
the onus is on you to prove it, you know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and I don't remember how much we talked about last time we talked about the, you know, the second launch, which I think was the last mention of this, but, uh, uh, the estimated size in mass is probably something like the X37B, right? Yeah. And I just want to point out, and I'll mention, I'll talk about this further in a, in the short and sweet, but, uh, it could launch on a Hyperbola 3, which is the iSpace reusable rocket, uh, first stage reusable. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting because, um, I had read that, you know, it's about, it, it has a payload capacity of about eight tons and, and that's about how much uh this spacecraft probably weighs again can't be sure um but if you're talking about a reusable launch system well that's you know two things that you can reuse you know the first stage and i guess you know the spacecraft itself the payload yeah i remember the last time we talked about this there was a fairing recovery that suggested a wingspan of about five meters or so we had looked at that and i linked a youtube video it's something put out i guess probably by the chinese government it kind of looks like <laughs> it kind of has that vibe to it hmm. and to be honest i'm kind of surprised like there's very little being said about this test spacecraft but why would they release these images or, or in fact like an actual video um which would indicate the wingspan hmm. um and maybe some other things as well and i don't know what we concluded the last time we talked about this but it seems like that fairing is what they're launching uh this particular spacecraft in and so we now have a good idea of the size or maybe they know that we know so who cares perhaps mm -hmm. yeah they're definitely not being very secretive about the fairing like, there's a lot of footage of the fairing and yeah yeah and in fact it was taken to a, a middle school or something in china and kind of like laid out for the students to look at um mm. again kind of weird not something that you would expect but yeah so uh the intervals between the launches so the first launch which was back in 2020 between that launch and the second one there was a one year and 11 month gap so like just about two years between launches uh between that launch and the this one uh it was shortened to seven months and uh the first launch uh stayed on orbit just for two days and it did like release something again we don't know what uh second launch that was on orbit for much longer 276 days and it too released something we don't know what um perhaps something for you know proximity operations uh, i think that's what people were kind of and i think that that's what we were speculating right mm. um something that space planes seem to do a lot of both of them returned to lapnor which is yeah way out in the Terran basin or Terim basin one thing of note, so SpaceX a couple of days ago, right? They scrubbed that Falcon Heavy launch, which was the 7th X-37B launch just hours prior to the actual launch of this launch vehicle. Now, I think that that is kind of sort of a coincidence, but uh, Space Force General Chance Saltzman does not think so. He says that they're trying to match this in timing and sequence. And I totally get that. I think that that's true, uh, but not necessarily like you know, like actually like, you know, we're going to launch on the same day as you. I don't think that that's possible. Um, you would need a little bit of, you know, you would need to know about that in advance, I think. And I don't know if there's that kind of, you know, forewarning. Mm. Yeah, definitely a, a competition here, you know, between these uh, reusable space planes. Um, I think that that's, yeah, that's not surprising. And then one last thing that I don't think we, maybe we've talked about this, uh, CASIC, which is not to be confused with CASC, which I guess is pronounced the same way. I don't know how to pronounce the acronym. Mm -hmm. Um, CASC is, uh, the organization, uh, that built this space plane, but then there's CASIC, CASIC, um, and they're working on a horizontal takeoff and horizontal landing two-stage orbit launch vehicle called uh, Tongyun, um, which, I mean, that's still quite a ways out. Uh, I don't think there's any hardware yet, um, but pretty ambitious with a horizontal takeoff and landing. So basically a space plane. Uh, <laughs> like early shuttle concepts where you had both the first stage maybe flying back. Or, or is, this, is this winged? 
Winged? Winged. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Winged. Yeah. It's a winged vehicle. Uh, it takes off on, you know, a runway and lands on a runway. So, um, but that's not expected to be launched until 2030. So, I mean, but, um, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing to mention. So they're really pressing for these space planes. Um, but yeah, there's not a whole lot else to say because it's so secretive, but, uh, yeah, pretty cool. I guess their next kind of step is can they do the, uh, extreme long duration flights that, uh, the X-37B mm-hmm. is proven. Yeah, and that probably, like, given what the Space Force in general said, probably, I mean, I'm sure that, that that's exactly what they're going to try to do. And probably this launch, I'm guessing, is going to be for at least over 300 days, let's say, since uh, this last one was 276. And I don't remember what the record of the X-37B is. Wasn't it like several years? Oh, yeah, it's over 900 yeah. days. So um, I think they're going for distance here. Mm, yeah, and then And then we can see if it really is, you know, kind of a back and forth between these two that they might be launching this, you know, space plane next year or whenever uh, on a, a larger rocket than a Long March 2F. And they can release mm-hmm. a turf statement saying that they're going to go and send it to new orbital regimes or whatever, essentially <laughs> copying what the 37B is doing right now. Yep. I think that that's basically, it's, you know, a tit for tat kind of a thing. Yep. Okay, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Ben, what is the first? Yep, refractory Starship. So a week after the first flight test, SpaceX started inspecting and refurbishing their launch pad. While minimal pad damage is visible, the team has notably now removed the launch clamps, some propellant hoses, and part of the booster quick disconnect. Between launch work also includes hooking up new subcoolers and tanks in the propellant farm. Starship 28 is in prep for its spin prime and static fire tests before being mated to Booster 10. SpaceX appears to be pushing for a second test flight as soon as safely possible. I guess that might be a, th- a third flight test there. <laughs> and then next up, iSpace hops again. Chinese launch startup iSpace has successfully carried out its second hop test of the Hyperbola 2Y test article. This second test reached nearly twice the altitude as the first, achieving an altitude of 343 meters, translating 50 meters, and landing with an accuracy of 0.3 meters. After completing ground tests, iSpace will attempt a test flight at sea next year, followed by an orbital test in 2025. And finally, Voyager 1 suffers communication anomaly. The 46-year-old spacecraft, operating over 15 billion miles from Earth, is currently unable to transmit any scientific or systems data back home. The issue stems from Voyager 1's flight data system, which compiles the spacecraft's telemetry and scientific data into a data package, which is then sent to the communications... which is then sent to the... which is then sent to the telecommunications unit and beamed back to Earth. The most recent data package has been, quote, stuck and only a useless pattern of ones and zeros is being transmitted in a repeating loop. NASA technicians are working on a solution, which may take weeks given the 45-hour time delay between Earth and the spacecraft. Yikes, that's sad. Doesn't that suck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, Voyager 1 is like done – well, both of the Voyagers have done so much more than we ever could have hoped. Hmm. And they're they're going to die eventually. Um, you know, they're getting really close, but just like, no, not yet. Not yeah. yet. Hold on. Just not ready. All right. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have just uh, one winner with the bonus points, um, and that person is Uncle Willie. So congratulations. The clue is what I thought was a video game reference, Achievement Unlocked. 
And that's the only context in which I know that <laughs> term. I think it's video games, right? Achievement unlocked. Yep. That's where that comes from. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't uh, even sure about that. But yeah, so I didn't really know anything about, you know, what this could be in reference to. But yes. Yeah, so Ben, what is this achievement uh, in reference to? <laughs> right. So this week in Spaceflight History is the 19th of December, 1976. It was the launch of the first KH-11 uh, Canon, also known as Keyhole Satellite. And that's that's the clue. Unlocked and Keyhole. Canon is such a great name. Uh, so we occasionally in the U.S. use the word Ken. You know, it's like in more common usage in like Scottish English. Uh, but right, Ken means like to know. And so if something is out of Ken, you, you don't know it. And Canon is the old English variant. I think, I believe it's a verb. And so it means to, to understand or to observe. Um, and that's a great name for a spy satellite, which indeed, you know, all the keyhole satellites are all, uh, spy satellites. KH 11 spans a, a very broad period in time, uh, of KH 11. Uh, spy satellites being sent up, obviously starting it in 76. And so the price has changed. And because everything is classified, we don't know exactly, but they, they probably cost somewhere between 3 billion and 5 billion US dollars uh, adjusted for inflation. They began a little cheaper and they've gotten more expensive as time has gone on. Yeah. So like these satellites are still classified as is the work that they do. There is some imagery out in public that is believed to have come from keyhole satellites. Um, some, you know, is like uh, KH eights and nines. Um, but there is one in particular that we think probably came from a keyhole 11, which was uh, a leaked photo. And I, I can't think of any other way to refer to it as leaked. It was tweeted by Trump in 2019. And it's an image of, um, an Iranian launch pad after they fail had a, had a failed launch and Trump tweeted it. And like, it very much aligns with his uh, political agenda um, to say, Hey, look, they, you know, somebody else did worse than America, but he declassified it as president. But I don't think anybody in the intelligence agency was very happy about that. And this image is, so incredibly high resolution. Um, obviously we don't have the full image likely from Twitter. Like it's, it's probably been downsampled pretty hard. Um, but it appears to be, uh, an image with resolution below 20 centimeters, which is so drastically above what every other satellite can do. Um, it, it's really shocking. Um, the image is taken from an angle, not from directly overhead, which means that there's more atmosphere between uh, the satellite and the target, which starts to suggest that this might have been shot from a drone rather than a, a satellite in orbit. If it was shot by a drone, that drone would have been violating Iranian airspace. And not that it necessarily would have made the news, but we don't really have any positive indication that that took place. So who knows that this may be from a satellite. The timing and angle of the photo do appear to agree with or, or be compatible with uh, the orbit of the most recent KH-11 launch, which is called uh, USA-224 or Enroll-49. And, and it it lines up pretty well, so you know there there's reason to think that that it may well actually have been taken from space, and it's it's really really incredible. That most recent launch was in 2011, believe it or not. So 
when I said a, a broad span of time, we start in 76 and we're still launching upgraded versions, but basically the same satellite uh, in 2011. That order, the build order for um, USA-224 also included another um, keyhole satellite that is still in storage as far as we know. It, it hasn't been launched. And this long lifespan of the program is important, but the, the vehicles themselves also have a, a pretty great lifespan. They fly using uh, hydrazine. They're, they're low enough uh, that they have atmospheric drag, which, you know, if you're taking photos, you want to be as slow as possible. Um, but they're, you know, continually consuming hydrazine to reboost. And apparently the original design was able to be refueled by a shuttle. And that, that never happened because the shuttle's highest inclination mission was 62 degrees. Um, and these things fly at a, at a higher inclination. So there are at least four or at least three blocks, uh, three different designs that have been updated. There may be a fourth one. It, it's kind of hard to tell. But uh, vehicles one to five orbit at 270 to 500 kilometers uh, vehicle six to nine orbit at 270 to a thousand kilometers. And that's, you know, major axis and minor axis or, uh, perigee and apogee. 10 to 17 all orbit at 395 by, uh, 419 kilometers. And all of these are all at a 97 degree inclination. Compare that to shuttle's 62, uh, degree record. There's the one exception, which is vehicle 17, which actually orbits at an inclination of 73.57 degrees. And that suggests it might be a slightly different version. It might be a block 3.5 or something. Uh, but maybe more likely is that it's not actually a keyhole. It's actually a MISTI, which is a, a different U.S. Uh, spy satellite. All of these three identified blocks um, almost certainly have the same optics chain. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Um, but they've upgraded a bunch of things. What we know is that they've upgraded their electronics. They've added more fuel when they switched, I believe, to uh, a Delta four heavy is when they started including more, uh, more fuel. And the, the blocks have also upgraded their comms as they've gone along. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Um, of course, you know, information is pretty sparse, uh, given the classified nature, but, you know, we have guesses, uh, from information that's kind of hard to, to deny. So I'm going to be saying all this with caveats, obviously, but nothing is too crazy here. So when I was writing this up, I, I knew that NRO had given NASA two spy satellites, but I couldn't remember which ones they were. And Dennis knew immediately um, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope uh, is a disused NRO spy satellite. NGRST has got such a great history, uh, starting as like W first and, oh, how are we going to build it? How are we going to afford it? How much can we spend on it? And then slowly, uh, moving over to m moving through different concepts and then finally ending up on this spy satellite that they reused. Uh, it's just, it's really cool. So these are not Hubble's. But they're probably pretty close, at least superficially. They all shipped in basically the same shipping container as Hubble did, which um, is a little bit of an indication. But also we know that Hubble was originally hoping to use a three meter mirror, but they wound up switching to a 2.4 mirror, a 2.4 meter mirror. And one of the reasons is that there was this uh, manufacturing like supply chain that had been set up and it was 
a, a pretty cheap way to make 2.4 meter mirrors. And, you know, it's kind of like an economies of scale kind of thing. And they went, oh, well, you know, we can take this smaller mirror, we get less resolution, but it's so much cheaper to create it. And the reason that those are so cheap is because NRO helped to build um, a CNC mirror polishing uh, technology um, that almost certainly is good at making 2.4 meter mirrors. And almost certainly that's what Hubble wound up using. So, you know, th- there's always the the heritage that relates almost every satellite to almost every other. So that's definitely a relation. Um, the form factor is is probably very similar. Um, and then, yeah, we we think that they use the the same mirrors. So kind of a, a cool tie there. And it's also really good context to help us visualize what this thing looks like in space. I think if you hold Hubble in your in your mind's eye, you pretty much you got it. As, as far as we know, anyway. So you say that Hubble swapped from a three meter to a two point four meter mirror, um, and I guess I'm not familiar enough with Hubble's history. Was that something that was done after Hubble was constructed? No. So it's basically always had a two point four meter mirror. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean from the from the you know late design phases. Because I was like, I don't know how that would work putting a smaller mirror right. in a larger. I mean, I guess you could, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely not uh, a Hubble servicing mission, um, but I, I don't think it happened. Yeah, during the late, uh, the the late design and construction. Okay, so uh, based on that, we believe that keyholes likely use a cast. Well, keyhole elevens in particular use a Cassegrain mirror system. Um, and Dennis, totally stop me if I got this wrong, <laughs> mm. but that's where you have your aperture at one end of the tube. And then you have a primary mirror at the back of the tube, and the primary mirror is concave. So it focuses the light uh, at a secondary mirror, which is about halfway up the tube. Um, and that secondary mirror reflects the light back towards the primary mirror, but through uh, a hole in the middle. Um, and the secondary mirror is convex, um, so that it the concave mirror makes all the uh, beams of light converge and the convex mirror, it doesn't make them um, diverge, but it does reduce the amount of convergence so that it can put the focal plane actually outside of the tube way in the back. And this is really nice for, uh, for optical mirrors that you're you know going to be putting your eye up to or a camera up to because you, you know, you, don't have to have another mirror inside the tube. And, you know, like some, is it radio telescopes? I think will actually have their sensor inside the tube. So it's a slightly modified geometry. But yeah, it gets you a nice big aperture, even though you've got a hole in the middle and you've got a mirror in the way. It works out pretty well. How how'd I do, Dennis? No, that was a great description. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there's there's always trade-offs and benefits to all the different types of, you know, telescope yeah. designs. And yeah, I think you captured... Uh, Castle Green's pretty good. So, so here, here's a total uh, rabbit hole. But do you guys watch uh, Bridgerton? Mm-mm. Is that a so, British okay. show? It, I, I don't know if it's British. I think it's actually uh, an American producer. I think it's Netflix. So Bridgerton is it's it's so good. If you muted the sound, it would still be worth watching because they have the most amazing costumes and makeup and hair that has 
I mean, in, in my opinion, ever been done. It's just incredible. Um, and like, there are some really lovely shots that you'll get occasionally where like, there will be an unusual shot and it's just there so that you can see somebody's shoes because they're really good shoes. Like, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> but it's not his, it, it's set in like Georgian England, but it's not a period drama. It's, I'm convinced it's fantasy because the world is so different that it it's unrecognizable as our world. Um, but it still has a lot of historical elements, but they're, they're just a gazillion anachronisms. Like they wear modern makeup. It's this particular brand of subtle and like pseudo period appropriate makeup, but is clearly modern. There are eyeliner wings and all these, all these things. It's, it's such a great mix of different tastes and it, I love it. So anyway, hmm. there was the main Bridgerton show and I don't know if they're going to be doing any more, but they just really Netflix just released a new series that's called like a Bridgerton story. Uh, so it's like in the same universe and actually it features a lot of the same characters, but it, they're focusing on the backstory of, um, in this case, the queen. And it's also fantastic. And my partner and I just binged it, uh, <laughs> as fast as we could. And in it, um, King George, um, not that King George, this is fantasy King George, um, is fascinated with astronomy. And so he has an observatory and he has this telescope that looks like a, a Copernican telescope is that or the the galilean telescope uh but it's huge it's on a tripod on a movable table and so to change the <laughs> to change the azimuth you have to step away from the telescope to a crank on the side of the room that cranks the table around at no point did they change the elevation of the telescope but i'm assuming you just grab it and yank it up and down but it's on this oversized tripod and and what really gets me oh actually there there's there's a gear that looks like it should be related to the the altitude but what really gets me is there is a spotter scope on the top of it that you absolutely could not see standing <laughs> on the ground. It's just the most ridiculous thing. I, I kind of hate it in that it looks like somebody had no idea how a telescope actually works. And so they just built this thing, but it's also very beautiful. Like the whole observatory set is just totally, totally gorgeous. And I, I feel very conflicted about it, but <laughs> I, like, I just, I had to talk about a telescope that I saw. And like, there's even like an LED inside the eyepiece so that when characters are looking through it, they get a little bit of light shining on their face. And it's like way more light than you would get if you looked at anything other than the moon. You know, like it's just, it's <laughs> totally ridiculous. Also, one of the things that, that King George looks at over and over and over that he's fascinated with is Venus and the windows at the top of this observatory are so high, you'd never be able to see Venus. And like, they talk about the transit of Venus coming up in a day or two and they show you Venus through the telescope and it's a crescent and it, it's a, it's a, a waxing crescent. It just, come on, come on folks. <laughs> um, okay. So, so let's go back to this Cassegrain mirror uh, setup where you've got the, the secondary mirror in the way of the primary mirror. Well, there's a, there's a rumor. We don't know if this is true, but apparently the, 
uh, KH11 mirror setup allows for moving the secondary mirror, the one that's in the middle. And that allows them to um, establish some weird like focal plane thing. So it's almost like, you know, tilting the camera to the side. Um, I'm not 100% sure what the benefit of that would be. But I wonder if if you move that mirror, you can change how much light actually makes it to the um, to the sensor. And so maybe you can trade off a faster, uh, a faster exposure, um, because more light is getting in for a little bit of resolution. I don't know. Doesn't sound unreasonable, right? Like that's could be. Um, and then, uh, an unsighted rumor on Wikipedia, it actually has the citation needed tag says that there are indications that, uh, KH11 can take photos every five seconds. Okay. Sure. Great. <laughs> if you say so. Now, the initial KH-11, the one that launched back in 1976, um, didn't have a CCD. Instead, it had uh, a very dense diode array. Um, and by dense, I mean several hundred diodes per inch. Absolutely insane for mid-70s technology, or rather early 70s technology, right? Because it takes that amount of time to develop this stuff. Really, really crazy. Eventually, um, KH-11's later blocks apparently did get CCDs. And, and what does CCD stand for? Charged couple device. Charged couple device. There you go. And and that is a much more complicated uh, structure than just a bunch of diodes surface mounted on a on a PCB. I, I don't know if they're actually surface mounted. I'm sure that there's some really clever silicon nonsense going on. Uh, but anyway, so um, keyholes uh, capture their image, they encrypt it and actually beam it out in real time. Uh, I guess they don't have storage on board or they opt to not use storage on board. And then initially the ground stations that receive the signal um, actually stored the image, not digitally, but they stored it on film. They had a laser that would raster, presum- I'm, I'm assuming raster over the film going back and forth and changing its brightness to expose the film uh, appropriately to, to show the, um, the image. So the, the image is encrypted before it's sent out. Uh, but encryption isn't enough when you're doing spy shit. So instead of the satellite beaming its data directly to the ground, right? Cause what's, what, what, what's on the ground when you're photographing Russia? Well, the ground is Russia. Yeah. So instead of doing that, um, the early, um, KH 11s are believed to have broadcasted their data out on the 60 gigahertz channel and 60 gigahertz doesn't make it through the atmosphere. So they can safely shout this data. I mean, I'm sure it's, you know, a directed beam, but like they don't have to worry about it leaking and being visible on the ground because the atmosphere is this nice insulation blanket. So in order to be able to receive that signal, they actually launched two relay satellites uh, into Molnia orbits um, that receive the data and then rebroadcast it back down to the ground. I'm assuming that when they do that, they are transmitting it while the Russian horizon is is blocking them uh, so that uh, you don't just re-encounter the same issue. And then in uh, 2016-2017, uh, two uh, geostationary relay satellites were also added to the network. The ground stations that they're talking to are believed to be in Virginia, Colorado, and one in Germany. And that's kind of a, a hard, a hard ending. I don't really have anything good to, to tail us out. 
Uh, so that's uh, that's the launch of uh, uh, the first Canon. That works. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good this week in space flight history, Ben. Now let's fast forward two weeks. The date range for the next clue, since we're taking next week off for Christmas, uh, is the 2nd of January through the 8th of January. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Two weeks from now in 1999. Secondary failures. So if you have a guess as to what that clue is referencing, uh, you can give us an email at info at the orbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon and use the hashtag thisweeksf. Or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server and type slash TWSF to hand your guest directly to our Tombot. And good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. So let's move on to the upcoming spaceflight events. We got six of them this week. Uh, again, most of them launches. Uh, ben, what's the first one? All right. First up is Firefly Alpha. This is Flight 004, uh, and it is named Fly the Lightning. So on board is Lockheed Martin's ESA Demo satellite. So ESA does not stand for European Space Agency in this case. It stands for Electronically Steerable Antenna. It's a fancy phased array, apparently, and it is on a Terran Orbital Nebula bus, which is pretty cool. It's going to be flying out of Vandenberg sometime between December 20th at 1648 hours UTC and 1826 hours UTC on the same day. And next up on December 21st, we have coverage on NASA TV of the robotic release of NASA's Northrop Grumman Cygnus cargo spacecraft from the ISS being released from there. And uh, yeah, so that uh, coverage will begin at 10.15 a.m. Eastern with the release itself scheduled for 10.30 a.m. Eastern. After that, on the 21st, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 launch, and that is launching Sarah 2 and 3. So Sarah, I guess, is a partial acronym. Maybe the first three letters, it looks like they stand for maybe synthetic aperture radar. Yeah, no, I was going to say that. I don't know. If, yeah, when you read that, I always want to say Sara. Which is like oh, it's the purpose yeah. of it. Maybe it's <laughs> Sarah. Um, so this is a uh, part of a German satellite constellation. Looks like uh, for the German government, the launch window is twelve fifty six UTC through fifteen sixteen UTC, and is launching from Vandenberg uh, from Space Launch Complex Four E. So, yep, check that one out. After that is a Falcon Nine flying Starlink Group Six. 32. That's going to be flying out of Cape Canaveral, uh, Slick 40, uh, sometime between December 23rd at 0400 hours UTC and 0831 hours UTC. And then we have a pair of solar system events happening. And so uh, things that you can't watch, but you can keep an eye out for, we have Parker Solar Probe's Perihelion number 18. 18th time that it's diving in close to the sun. And so this will take place on December 29th. Uh, it will only be four and a half million miles above the solar surface. I think that's like less than 10 solar radii away. Um, it's going to be cruising by at 176 kilometers per second, which is 394,000 miles per hour, which is just absurd. And uh, yeah, these are going to be coming uh, more rapidly now after the most recent uh, Venus flyby uh, because uh, PSP is now on a 92-day period. And so, yeah, hopefully we'll get some cool uh, new uh, science uh, out of this uh, recent flyby. And then after that, we have yet yeah, the other event, which is the uh, Juno Perahove or Perijove. I think it's a Perijove uh, number 57. The minimum predicted flyby altitude is uh, 1,500 kilometers. And then the next one coming up in February on February 3rd of 2024. Looks like the predicted altitude for that will also be 1,500 kilometers. But uh, but yeah, so uh, just be aware of that, I guess. <laughs> you can, these aren't things you can really watch, but you know they're happening. Happening and cool. 
All right. Those are your upcoming space flight events. All right. And so that means it's time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ron Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mr. Cesium, Mike, Leon Runningman, and Chubby for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about. Or you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you all in two weeks. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Happy New Year.